Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We've got a good one for you this week, starting with the first posthumous retrospective of Emma Amos, who passed away last year. My first guest is Shania L. Harris, the curator of Emma Amos' Color Odyssey, a retrospective that opens Saturday, January 30th at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia. Amos was important in helping to bring second-wave feminism into American art, in addressing many American and art histories within her work, and in making work that synthesized her interest in printmaking, weaving, and painting. Amos will remain on view in Athens through April 25th, when it will travel to the Munson-Williams-Proctor Arts Institute in Utica and the Philadelphia Museum of Art. The show's outstanding catalog, which features essays by Lisa Farrington, LaToya Ruby Frazier, Laurel Garber, Kay Walkingstick, and Phoebe Wolfskill, was published by the Georgia Museum of Art. It's available from GMOA for 40 bucks, and you should get it. It will be on Amazon soon. On the second segment, Marie Watt. And before we get to the show, thanks very much to those of you who left us five-star ratings and reviews this past week. There's always room for more. If you download the show through Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate all the help you can give us. Shania Harris, after the break. Join Getty President Jim Cuno as he talks with artists, writers, curators, and scholars on the Art and Ideas podcast. Learn about Black mid-century architect Paul R. Williams from the perspective of his granddaughter, Karen Hudson, and curator LaRon Brooks. Hear the story of Japanese-American photographers in pre-World War II L.A. with curator Virginia Heckert. Explore the lives of Pliny the Elder and Younger, plans for rebuilding Beirut after the recent explosions, and an alternative history of surrealism found in Dora Maar's Lost Address Book. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Hi, everyone. I want to tell you about a free new app called Bloomberg Connects. It lets you access museums, galleries, and cultural spaces around the world anytime, anywhere. The app doesn't address just a single institution or one exhibition, but instead takes a portfolio approach by offering access to many different cultural institutions through a single download. On Bloomberg Connects, you can discover new cultural offerings, including some with which you might not be as familiar, creating exciting opportunities for you to find new ideas that address your interests across geographically disparate institutions. Bloomberg Connects currently has guides available for many cultural institutions in New York and London, including New York's the Noguchi Museum, which is presenting Futura Akari, an installation of a group of Akari light sculptures designed by Isamu Noguchi from 1952 to 1986 and hand-painted by Futura 2000 in 2020. It's up through February 28th. Bloomberg Connects was created by Bloomberg Philanthropies to make arts and culture accessible to more people around the world. Download Bloomberg Connects today to access digital guides, to hear from artists, curators, and experts, and to get the stories behind exhibitions. You can download Bloomberg Connects on the Apple app and Google Play stores and from app.bloombergconnects.org slash modernartnotes. Artist Michael Rakowitz tackles the complex questions of history, heritage, and identity. The 2020 Nasher Prize honors his pioneering sculpture, like The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, which responds to the looting of the National Museum of Iraq in Baghdad. Experience the work of Michael Rakowitz in person at the Nasher Sculpture Center, on view now through April 2021. Book a ticket in advance at nashersculpturecenter.org. And we're back. Shania Harris, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler, for having me. 
Let's start by talking about the very first painting in your career-spanning exhibition, because I think it's the first painting in the show because you know no one's expecting it. It's a painting called Shepherd's Path. It's from 1958. In what is it rooted, and how is it unlike what we know uh, know Amos for? Let, let me just kind of preface it by saying that I felt that that particular work was one of the most important and kind of showing a bit of irony in what people expect to see from Amos. And by that, I mean, most people who have been exposed to her work or seen other examples of her work, seen her as a figurative artist, always depicting, you know, maybe self-portraits or work showing lots of figures. And, you know, when I discovered in researching Amos that she wanted to be an abstract expressionist painter earlier in her career, I was like shocked. But then as time went on, I could see where it wasn't really that far-fetched a notion. She painted that particular work while she was studying in London. She did her undergraduate work at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And at the latter part of her undergraduate time there, they have a study abroad component like a lot of, you know, a lot of universities do. And she chose this London Central School of Art to study printmaking, of all things. But while she was there, she also saw a lot of ironically, American abstract painters that were exhibiting in London at the time at museums and galleries. And as she became fascinated and started to, you know, create works that were abstracting nature. So that even though she was experimenting with in, you know, in the printmaking realm, which throughout her career later on was a significant portion of it, she still kind of eschewed the the figure. She was you know, working in an abstract manner. So I think that that was kind of a formative period for her, not only in terms of her concept of abstraction, later developed into kind of moving back into a figurative mode, but also even how she is using color to create mood and, you know, how that kind of changed over time. And so she was, you know, she was playing with a lot of things at that point, but there's a few works that, we've identified that came out of that period that she was working in London or studying in London, I should say. But this was one example that was still actually owned by one of, you know, one of her children. So I, I thought it was it was great. The, the reference to Shepherd's Path uh, was apparently where she was staying at the time that she was in London. So it kind of gives us a, some geography around her, her time in London. Throughout the show, I think visitors we'll see, and readers of the catalog will see, that she was comfortable with abstract languages and and with abstraction. And I I think that that being the first painting in the show from 1958 uh, really sets that up wonderfully. The one, the one, you know, it's also a very Helen Frankenthaler-ish painting. And it's, it was interesting to me how quickly she was done with Frankenthaler. (laughs) Let's back up a little bit and do a quick hit of Amos biography. She was from Georgia. She grew up in a a comfortably middle-class family. How did she get from being a pharmacist's daughter to being an artist? Well, her father studied in Ohio himself. He went to school at Wilberforce, and then later he studied in Cincinnati to receive his pharmacy degree. So he was very influential in getting Amos to think about Ohio or, you know, a college in Ohio to study, perceived as 
much more tolerant or progressive compared to Georgia or Southern universities that, you know, you would expect that she probably would have attended, particularly like historically black colleges. And so Amos decided on Antioch. And it's interesting because in the research process for the exhibition, I stumbled upon or and then I found out it was later published by, I guess, kind of an alumni arm of, of Antioch, her senior essay. <laughs> where she has to talk about, you know, what she what she learned, you know, in being a student and what was important about being a student at Antioch and, you know, all of her feelings. And I remember like having to write, you know, as an undergraduate, you know, write a very serious, you know, thesis. And you're both trying to sound professional, but at the same time, you're still trying to figure out what language to use to describe a little bit more about yourself. And she essentially felt that she was still trying to discover who she was as an artist. She knew that she wanted to be an artist when she got there, but she had to do like a series of internships and in different fields and kind of like almost like a, you know, work experience every summer in different major cities. But it always ended up where, you know, she knew that you know, she wanted to refine herself as an artist. And so Antioch allowed her to have the freedom to do that and not necessarily have to become a doctor or like her father, a pharmacist um, or a lawyer. Although she did have a brief period where she was like, well, maybe I need to go back home and help with the family business. You know, this this art thing is kind of hard. <laughs> but, you know, she still persisted even after she, I mean, she just as another bit of a note, she does return to Atlanta after she graduates, but she only stays there probably less than a year. And the thing that she uh, mentioned later on in the years was that her first exhibition was in Atlanta. It wasn't in New York. And her gallerist uh, was Judith Alexander, who owned the New Arts Gallery in Atlanta, which was kind of a startup contemporary or kind of a, a major startup to the kind of the contemporary art scene at that time. And she loved being represented by that gallery, even in that brief period. I think she might have had some contact even after she left to go to New York. But I mean, in, even in the spite of that, she could see that there was a limitation just being in Atlanta as a Black artist trying to, you know, start her career. But, you know, Atlanta was ironically the place that she probably remembered that exhibition the best. And those were the that was an exhibition that showed a lot of her abstract etchings that she produced while she was both in London and um, perhaps a little bit at Antioch, but mainly in London. But but Atlanta was always a place of history, not just personal history, but you know, it really gave her a sense of place as as an American. And that was something that I saw even overshadowing her later years, where no matter how long she had been in New York, since 1960, she had been in New York. And even to the point where she began to lose her memory a little bit more rapidly, she'd always mention Georgia. She'd always mention Atlanta, which was, she'd say, I, I wish I could go back home. I wish I could, I could see Atlanta again. And it was kind of touching, you know, when I, I mean, I wasn't expecting her to say that. But, you know, somehow Atlanta always colored or that period of growing up in Atlanta colored her sense of identity, but also her sense of herself as an artist. You mentioned earlier how important 
printmaking was to Amos right from the start. And you have several of the etchings you mentioned a moment ago from the late 50s, early 60s in the exhibition. I want to raise two works that you put together in the catalog, and I presume in the show, as usual, we're taping before the show is up. One is a a print called Inside Outside from 1966, and the other is an outstanding painting from the same year called First Avenue Window. Is this a good example of how she began bouncing ideas back and forth between printmaking and painting and how they informed each other? Yeah, I think it is. One In an early interview that Amos did, she talked about how printmaking was the way in which she often learned about color and color mixing rather than painting being the primary mode. So she found printmaking to be very liberating, you know, as an artistic practice for her. And that's where she begins to experiment with color, which kind of surprised me because she had such a a large trove of paintings that she did in the 60s in a probably within a, a year period that I just assumed. But she's like, no, those early printmaking opportunities. When she came to New York, she worked with Leterio Calipay's printmaking studio, and then later with Robert Blackburn, probably you know the more notable time period for her as time went on. And then, you know, I can imagine, you know, that she, that was a space in which she felt that she could really elevate her etchings, even though she was actually teaching and working in those spaces in between, you know, that was what she was doing. When she did start to paint, a little bit more aggressively, that was when she was working on her master's degree at New York University. And even in those early paintings that often get well publicized and, you know, lots of exhibitions, and we have examples in our exhibition, she talked a lot, you know, I've seen reference where she's talked a lot about how color and that sensibility around color was her preoccupation. So I think that there was like a fusion of the two. She was mixing, you know, working in different media and she could never quite separate herself and say, I'm just going to be a painter. I'm just going to be a printmaker. She always found, or or a textile artist, you know, so she was enmeshed in all of those worlds. Where do you think First Avenue Window comes from art historically? Because there's clearly a window there, which is thoroughly representational, but there are also really abstract elements, especially on the right lower right-hand side of the painting. I suspect strongly she has seen and knows of Ellsworth Kelly's red-green-blue paintings, which, which Kelly begins in the late 50s, early 60s, because she seems to be addressing them. What, what do you see her as putting together here, especially that will become important to her later on? One of the things that I always say about, like a lot of the paintings that I've seen like the 60s paintings and some of her 90s paintings, even though they seem kind of divergent, they, in many ways they're not. I always like to look at how she compresses the sense of 3D space and then she kind of compresses it in such a way that, you know, she's flattening the picture plane. So you're looking at what appears to be, I mean, it might be a clock or a, uh, a record player, you know, or something in that window but it's a compression, so you, you're you not getting that sense of depth. But you, there's a, enough of a suggestion of it that you know that 
you're entering into or looking out of a space. And you see that with a lot of her works that were done, like her falling works in the 90s, where, you know, you can see this, you're not, you know, you're just kind of getting a flattened version of what is a much larger universe of of objects and interiors or exteriors, if you will. And, you know, that kind of fracturing and flattening of the picture plane. And, you know, I always think of a lot of the European artists that she might have been looking at, I mean, both early and later. You know, she was a big fan of Matisse. She was a big fan of Picasso. Picasso was probably, you know, you'll see in later works that in some, in fact, that are in the exhibition that, you know, she really, I mean, just, you know, was highly enamored with these artists and what techniques they use for pulling in the viewer. And so she's experimenting a lot during this phase of, you know, how to manipulate spaces and also objects or people in spaces. And then that has a, a, a social element um, that becomes added to it or a suggestion of social content in other works that she produced is in the 60s where you know, whether it be the insertion of women's bodies or the exclusion or kind of fracturing of women's bodies that you see in some of the works that, you know, particularly her paintings in the 60s while she was with Spiral. Amos is primarily a, a painter and printmaker from, from, you know, 58 to about 1982, at which point she starts making the, the, the textile works that are, that are so spectacular. In those years, in the 60s and 70s, before she's making textiles, what is she most interested in as a painter? I would think that in the 60s, you know, she was interested in, of course, I mean, it's very obvious that she was interested in color. She was interested in form and playing with form, formal qualities she could produce. But just to kind of back up a little bit, actually, Amos was, and this is one of the things I've hope to underscore with the exhibition, although we don't have some of her earlier, probably more commercially driven works, is that she was always a textile artist. If you think about her career with noted textile, you know, textile artist Dorothy Leibs, you know, and she worked as a weaver and artist with her, you know, designing things like, like, again, for a more commercial setting, like carpets and upholstery and different things for Bigelow Sanford, which was uh, supplied for hotels and other spaces. But she was always a textile artist. I think what changed in the 80s is that she did it more for kind of a fine arts, you know, like she drifted more toward incorporating it into her regular practice in fine arts related spaces. So, but it was always creeping up into, in her works. If it doesn't show up in terms of pattern and decoration that are visible in her paintings, it, in some of her early printmaking work, she still, she actually does incorporate cloth or fragments of her weavings that she did in, you know, because she was actually teaching weaving in the seventies. As early as 1971. Yeah. Yeah. So she was always she was always weaving. It was just that she felt that, particularly as a woman artist, that, you know, weaving was always viewed as kind of taboo or anything in the textile dimension was viewed as kind of non-fine arts, you know, this kind of high and low division in the arts. And so she was always a little bit, you know, hand, she felt handicapped that she couldn't incorporate textiles more 
in order to be taken seriously. But then at a certain point, she was like, well, nobody's looking at my paintings anyway. <laughs> I might as well just do what I want to do. And so she started to experiment more with how she could fuse various media. And then by the 70s, the late 70s, she was doing it a little bit more. But by the early 80s, she really had gone pretty much full-blown into incorporating textiles into larger paintings um, that we're probably more familiar with seeing maybe reproduced um, or we'll see in the exhibition. Yeah, the more the more media she embraces at any one time, the more exciting the work. And I think that runs runs through the through the whole show. You mentioned that she begins to bring textiles into the paintings in the 70s. A great example from the show is India and Afghan from 1977, India being um, Amos's daughter. How does she use, if not foreground and almost dwell on textiles in that painting? Well, with that painting, you know, you have India, as you mentioned, her daughter, who's kind of sitting on a bench, you know, and has a little Snoopy doll nearby and... You know, and you you have all of these kind of references that are both kind of remind you of Amos's own history itself. I mean, you have the Afghan um, as a suggestion of a kind of textile kind of weaving process. Then you have the Persian rug on the floor that kind of reminds us of even her own designs. I mean, it it wasn't one of her designs, but, you know, just her involvement in the decorate, you know, the decorative aspects of weaving and textiles. And then I always like to think about individuals, um, even her daughter herself as being something of a material, you know, I mean, even though she's a, you know, a flesh and blood or suggestion of a flesh and blood person that Amos kind of integrated the entire environment that everything had a look and also had a feel and color to it. You know, she had some printmaking works that were produced a few years later. And I always in- intimate to people that not only is she suggesting pattern just through the process of the, you know, creating it with the, you know, the texture of the paper, the texture she's creating through kind of the cross hatching that you see in the image, but even the skin of the person, you can almost, f- you know, you feel like it has a texture just like a piece of cloth. And so, Amos is always intimating about texture, even, you know, or that things are are real, that she wants you to feel them just as much as she wants you to see them with your, your eyes. She wants you to feel them with your eyes as well. Maybe the warmth of a of, of the subject that she's that she's depicting. The other thing that's happening in that the, on the year that she produces that work is that she's working as on a kind of almost PBS WGBH in Boston's um, public broadcasting stations uh, show show of hands. And her co-host was Beth Gutchin, who was a, also a textile artist. So there's this way in which you know, she's bringing all of her experiences together into a work like that. You know, being a mother, having to kind of divide her time between traveling to Boston, commuting to Boston to tape the show. She was still, you know, dabbling with teaching part time, but then she was raising her family, you know, trying to develop her, you know, artistic career. So in 1977, that's actually the the first year that she does the Show of Hands series. And it was about 13 episodes. Uh, It wasn't a very long series, but I I got a chance to see a a few episodes of that show. 
And, you know, you can see that she's, you know, they're, they're involved in a, a variety of craft projects with her co-hosts. And I mean, it's like she was in heaven being around textiles and weaving and teaching. And it, it's a, a, a totally different picture of her that you would expect. You know, you expect to see her with a paintbrush in her hand, but, you know, she's talking about, you know, cloth and how excited she is about, you know, all these different things she can do with, with all these craft related projects. And so I think that that painting, it shows just kind of the jubilation of, you know, of her being able to integrate all of those things into her, into her work. But the irony is that a painting like that back in those days, wouldn't have been very popular for Amy. She would have probably hidden that painting from anyone to see it. <laughs> you know, there are two other things about that painting I, I, I related to that painting I want to raise. One, is she still working for Sesame Street in the years when she's working on this painting of her daughter? She would have weaned off of Sesame Street. She pretty much ended the term with Sesame Street around, I think, 1975. But Again, that's a good point that she was also an illustrator for Sesame Street for some time. And we found a few issues of Sesame Street that actually, it was not reproduced in the catalog, that depicted her kids. So apparently her kids were models for some of the photographs of children that were in the Sesame Street magazine um, in the 70s, probably around between 72 and 74 you know, there were pictures of India sitting at a little table playing or sun, you know, sitting on a block, you know, one of those huge, you know, blocks that had a letter or number on it. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's quite cute. You know, the kids came everywhere. You know, they, you know, they were models for her paintings. They were models for Sesame Street. You know, maybe they might have appeared in another illustration that we haven't identified yet. Yeah, I mean, it was all inclusive. And I, I think that that aspect of her as an artist is really important because we often tend to think about the finished work of an artist in a, you know, like kind of a high-minded art, fine art sense. And we forget about all the different influences that begin to accumulate that eventually will get that artist to the works that we often laud in museums and galleries and the processes or the, whether they be psychological or mechanical, that got them to that point. And so I, I I love to look at like a lot of those earlier, maybe whether it be an illustration or an early painting and see how she moves across different media and across time and says, hmm, I'm going to try this again. Or maybe I can, you know, I can turn this around and I can use something that I I did in an earlier phase. It's also a multi-generational painting in a way in that there is this probably not new Afghan in the painting, and India isn't just the name of Amos's daughter. India is the name of Amos's mother. Yes, and the only regret that I have with my exhibition is that I didn't have the pleasure of bringing in more works that depicted Amos's, like in a more explicit manner, I should say, depicting Amos's family. You know, just kind of a little bit of background. Her mother was a teacher, and also a great community activist, apparently, in Atlanta. I mentioned earlier that her father was educated in Ohio, but her mother was educated in Atlanta, Atlanta University. You know, just in doing a little bit of research, you know, I can find, I found some early, you know, newspaper articles where 
you know, she might have been her mother was involved in a lot of, you know, community oriented work around Atlanta University. They interacted with a lot of notable historical figures. They lived near them in in Atlanta. And so she it's true that this whole idea of history and and staying in this connectedness to history through, you know, how the naming of, for example, her daughter or even her own name. She's named after her own grandmother, Emma Holmes. And so it's kind of I mean, it's, again, a, wo- a thing that's kind of, if you will, woven into her work throughout is the sense of what uh, Lisa, uh, scholar Lisa Farrington describes as a family romance that Amos seemed to have, you know, just across the board, that she couldn't divorce herself from all the types of family that she accumulated over time, whether it be her biological family or her family developed through her interactions in New York and her friendships and so forth. So, And as we'll talk about in a minute, there are other families whose family stories surface in her work as well. In 1982, as we mentioned a moment ago, she starts making and exhibiting these handwoven textile works. The first one in the exhibition is out in front from the collection of the MIA in Minneapolis. It was also in Anna Katz's great pattern and decoration show at MOCA in 2019. What does this pivot to or or broader embrace of textile allow her to begin to do in the work? How does she take advantage of, of the new medium? Well, just to kind of begin with, um, a lot of commentary about Amos in the past generally tended to focus on fabric that maybe had African origins or you know, maybe a connection to like, you know, maybe her the borders of her paintings. What I like about the earlier work is it kind of debunks that that's, you know, the extent of textiles. Most of the early works, or if not all, I should say, were an incorporation of maybe some textiles that might have been commercially produced, but largely her own weavings. So again, she's had a lot of experience weaving textiles in her early career, working under people like Dorothy Liebes, but also, of course, you know, she was teaching at Threadbare. And so she had a lot of scrap material, I'm sure. I mean, I don't even have to, I can only imagine. I mean, she had so much that she could only go so far with, you know, in terms of just weaving just independently without any purpose for it. So what she began to do is she started taking weavings that she had from the past and maybe even a few that she did simultaneously in producing the work. And she began to kind of, I don't want to say recycle, that doesn't sound right, but reuse <laughs> or reappropriate into into her own, in, you know, I mean, into unique works. And of course, they're very colorful there's kind of this interplay or suggestion of, for example, in this work of both shadow and, you know, a positive space, negative space. And I, I recall hearing an interview with Amos where she talks about how, you know, like everyone often focuses on filling up a space or that you, you have to fill every space and that it's all about positive and positive space, but she's like, you know, let's not forget about what negative space does. Let's not forget about the absence of filling up every area, <laughs> what that can do, and that that actually becomes a part of the composition. And so I see with the work like out in front, just as much as the the darker figure that's kind of holding 
her head or has their hands up raised is, you know, a focal point for a viewer. But so, too, is the kind of shadowy figure that is in the background in green that, you know, is suggestive of almost like a negative or almost like a shadowy presence back there, that that populates the work as well, as well as, you know, the other, you know, areas of color that, you know, might suggest a terrain or pattern that, you know, dangles. The island of Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's, I, I think that's Manhattan between the two figures in, in Out in Front. So, I mean, it does make you wonder. I mean, she, the also the early 80s was a period that she wanted to focus a lot on athletic and moving bodies. I Let me, let me stop you there for a second, because I wanted to ask you about that. So as she, as she pivots to these textiles, she is showing first athletes, track athletes, basketball players, sprinters. And then as the years go go on, she expands her interest in bodies in motion, if you will, to include uh, swimmers and gymnasts um, and the like. Why athletes, uh, dot, 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 and the rest? And why now? Well, there's a couple of things that were going on with Amos, both aesthetically as well as just, you know, just from anecdotally. Aesthetically, Amos was very interested in the whole notion of movement and how you could produce movement through the use of textiles or the interplay with textiles. In later work, she, you know, suggests movement through kind of an expressionistic painting style, but she really, really wanted to make those textiles move, you know, and she looked at even the canvas, like in canvas or the background canvas as material. You know, she didn't look at it as, okay, this is a surface in which I'm working only. It was, there was an interplay between that and any other type of fabric or textile she placed on it. But she didn't want the the, the figures to be seem so static. And, and let me just jump in on that for a quick second. In the paintings of the 70s and early 80s, the figures are almost always static or darn near static. The movement really comes in, that, that sense of figural movement comes in with the textiles. Exactly. And, and it, it's funny because it's probably the opposite of what you would think. And I think that was one of the things that she was very masterful about is insisting that she could create a sense of movement and figuration without necessarily painting. I mean, these were her, you know, there wasn't some paint involved, but very little in these early works. I mean, it was largely just material and maybe a little bit of acrylic paint um, applied to the surface. And, you know, she worked really hard at creating these angles and, you know, like these kind of off center figures, um, even like the, the bottom, fr you know, the bottom fringes of her, of these like largely textile paintings, you know, she made them irregular. You know, she didn't want them to look like too rectangular or too, too defined because by doing so, she was able to create a sense of movement or a sense of flow, like with the fringes on the bottom you know, uh, particularly this painting or this, this this kind of layer that's part from the main layer, she could, you know, move the figure for, forward by doing that. I think that that is the thing that really became transformative for her was how she could incorporate something that really she was a part of her past artistically that she wasn't feeling would have as much attention, but that became the thing that provided the attention toward this body of work. Let's talk a little bit about some of the themes and subjects that run throughout the work and across media. 
One of them is Amos's interest in flags, American flags later on, the Confederate stars and bars. For me, and I'm open to being disagreed with on this, of course, as always, the, the, the first work in the show that seems to address the American flag is American Girl, a print from 1974, which kind of refers to the flag with a field of stripes and a field of star-like squares, if you will. Continues in works like Redline Drawing of 1981, Horizons 1968, and then later on paintings like Sold from 1994. Why was Amos interested in flags and why does she stick with them across two or three decades? You know, that's one thing that, you know, I never truly got a full sense of why Amos, like it was just kind of a part of her, I, I would say, artistic subconscious. You know, I mean, it, it's pretty clear, obviously, that she used flags and she had maybe certain intentions with the flag at different periods in her career. But she never said, well, I'm really trying to use the flag all the time because of this one reason or maybe this one influence. I think with American Girl, you know, in 1974, in which the period at which she's producing this, you know, this is in the period of, I mean, we're still largely in the the Black Power period, this kind of reckoning, I mean, in, you know, civil rights movement and a lot of things have happened. And and also this kind of, in the feminist movement, and there's this reckoning with, as an American, I mean, pre-bicentennial, what does it really mean to be American, but also be a woman, also be a person of color against, if you will, the backdrop of this country whose symbol is embodied in the American flag. In studying this particular print, you can see there's this kind of heavy white outline that, you know, goes around her head and kind of through that, that kind of fractures that the flag, if you will, if you wanted to look at the suggestion of the flag. All the, all the way left to right across the entire print. Right. And I'm always fascinated with how Amos places like a female body, and it always seems to kind of interrupt the you you know the, a flag. <laughs> I mean that that a, uh, that a woman's body becomes the interruption of whatever is suggested. Horizons, nineteen sixty eight, same thing. Right, and or I mean, not always female, but in large part female bodies, and that there's this idea about the an exception, or you know, there's no you know, one way to kind of look at Americanness that it's constantly being interrupted or fractured by all of these different bodies. And, and in this case, a black woman's body is interrupting this very kind of very generic, you know, flattened, you know, interpretation of what it means to be American. And so that, you know, there's this kind of assertion in the American girl, like the, you know, the very intensity of those you know, of that, uh, of that, you know, that darkness, you know, around her, you know, both in her hair and just her face. I mean, there's this density that I always tend to think about with a lot of her figures there. Like, you know, you mentioned earlier that with her paintings, there was this, you know, there's this very static feeling. And then there's this density when she wants to depict something or, or, or a figure that has importance. She wants to place them solidly there. But but back to the outline is just during the printmaking process, one of our contributors, Laurel Garber, talks about how it actually took two plates 
to create this image. And that the outline, that white outline, is kind of that space in between that's created through this, you know, the, the, the fusing of those things. And so this kind of fracturing and then reassembly, if you will, of a lot of Amos's figures through, and particularly in, in the print, during the printmaking process, I think it has a, a deeper significance is that, you know, that nothing is whole, everything is fractured, and we go about this process, her as an artist in this case, but even a society of bringing things back together again in a new form with a new structure using, you know, pieces and parts from a variety of spaces. And so you see that come up again and again, like even in the painting where she has, a, you know, depicts herself as called um, Equals, which is a very important painting in her career where, you know, it looks like she's, again, interrupting the flag with a lot of different elements, whether it be, you know, photo transfer images that replace stars, whether it be her physical body kind of falling through space. You know, there's always this commercial break, <laughs> if you will, that occurs with, with Amos's larger body of work when, you, when she's utilizing the flag. Red Line Drawing 1981 is kind of the key work between the 74 work and and equals. We'll have images of all of them on, on manpodcast.com. As you noted early on in your last answer, Emma Amos was really interested in issues of the idea of the American nation and questions of race. And the way she probably most consistently addresses America's racial history and present in her work is through the constant, persistent, career-long resistance of binaries. There are very often both white and black figures within individual works, and Amos, unlike other painters or artists, re really insists on ambiguous skin tones often throughout. I think you call her in the catalog, uh, you refer to her as being color-conscious within individual works. Why, either biographically or not, was she so color conscious? Well, she's she's remarked in uh, in several interviews, you know, whether written or oral, that in part it was due to her own background. She always always talked about how she wasn't just, you know, she didn't view herself as just an African American, um, and in fact that term, you know, bothered her for several years because she felt like, well, I'm not just African American, I'm. Norwegian American, I'm Native American, I'm, you know, a European. I mean, you know, she she found a lot of wealth in the fact that that she knew what her family heritage was, whether it was, you know, coerced, you know, intermixture, if you will, through the process of enslavement of her ancestors, or whether it was by uh, a mode of choice, even in her own nuclear family with her children and her husband. Her husband was a white Jewish man and her children were mixed. And But she was too. The other thing that Amos does a lot is she plays with her own complexion in, you know, even if she inserts herself in a kind of self-portrait fashion in her works, like she she liked playing with, you know, hey, I'm, you know, a little darker in this image. I'm lighter in this image. You know, she sometimes would show images of, that were suggestive of her own family, and she darkened or lightened their skin um, because she felt like, well, if I look at my own family tree, 
I mean, everyone's of a different shade. Blackness is not one shade, um, and therefore I'm not going to depict it in that way. So even if you are going to say I'm a Black artist, I'm not. Blackness is a much broader concept that has social and political implications. But phenotypically speaking, you know, we come with a wide I mean, a, a wide variety. And I want to explore that. And I, you know, and she thought that it was it was fun to be able to have that flexibility, both as an artist and a thinker when it came to showing the, the you know, intermixture and hybridity in her work. Do you think she and Adrian Piper were looking at each other? Because I think of Adrian Piper's 1981 self-portrait exaggerating my Negroid features and how it seems to pop up in a couple of works in, in, in the show. There's Amos's 1981 Preparing for a Facelift. Of course, I don't know which work came first. And Amos's 1999 work, Two-Faced. Funny that you say that because I have an image of Two-Faced near me on my desk. And I always think about Adrian Piper uh, whenever I see that image. In fact, there's a we have only that particular impression in our um, exhibition, but there were a few others. And the other one that I've seen by the artist, you know, her skin color was darker. You know, this is more of a peachy, you know, skin color. You're, ta- you're talking about Two Face now, yeah. And you know, again, there's this, you know, even within her own self-portrait she nuances the whole notion of skin color. And I do think that she was looking at Adrian Piper's work. Amos was very, you know, she didn't, she never expressed a lot of influences. She never, with the exception of maybe a Picasso or Matisse. Yeah, she didn't have to though, right? I mean, they're very, she's take, she's taking them head on pictorially. You know, she's doing a lot of, sam- I call it sampling. And sometimes she would acknowledge it, you know, publicly and say, oh, yeah, I, I was looking at this person's work. I was looking at Leon Golub's work. I was looking at, you know, Lucian Freud's painting. Other times she, you know, she sampled probably, you know, from the standpoint that a lot of artists were working contemporaneously and they were all sampling from each other in some cases, you know, seeing each other's works at different exhibitions. Cole Scott. Yeah, Cole Scott, definitely. You know, I, I mean, you can find a variety of references in just about any period of her work. Earlier, you talked about Clifford Still with some of the or, or reactions to artists like that in some of her earlier works. Later on, too, Targets from 1992 is kind of having fun with Johns and Still and yeah. And so I think that, you know, I, 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 I described her uh, before we got on the call as you know, being a bit picaresque. And I remember that about Amos, like she loved to people watch. (laughs) And she, you know, she would often talk, I mean, we would, you know, have these conversations about people and, you know, and different artists, like if I, you know, would, you know, kind of go around with her a little bit, you know, she'd find these things and she'd like, she just liked to play with, you know, different concepts or play with different things that, you know, she saw in, in works of art that really inspired her or interested her. So Amos's interest in how race was studied and portrayed in America extends well beyond her own visage and, and her own family. It extends to works such as Bootstraps, Clarence Thomas and Ward Connerly, a delightfully acid work about two black conservatives, two black arch conservatives. But it also extends 
to a kind of immediate response to historical scholarship. In 1997, Annette Gordon-Reed published Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings in American Controversy, and Amos immediately engaged Gordon-Reed's work with her own 1997 great-grandpa Jefferson. Could you describe that work, in, in, including how Amos engages Gordon-Reed's research, and then maybe talk about why you think Amos was interested in addressing Gordon Reed's scholarship so immediately, so quickly, so promptly. Basically, with that particular work, Amos, she kind of departs from just making kind of the standard fabric bordered paintings that she was doing at the time. And she kind of creates, a, if you will, a, a woman's skirt and top composed of, you know, kind of an African inspired fabric. But in the center of it. There's an image or visage of Thomas Jefferson in a kind of, someone would call it a county fair style <laughs> ribbon, you know, on the head and around or is kind of encircling him. And there's this weird way in which she kind of, you know, like makes Thomas Jefferson be the central in the center portion. I mean, the center of his face is actually located kind of in, I would say, the pelvic region <laughs> of that. <laughs> Her belly. <laughs> right in the belly, yeah, and, and belly of the of the outfit. You know, he's kind of almost a you know a little fetus growing inside. So you you get that suggestion of okay, he's hoping to there's some of his DNA, if you will, in this particular creation. I think that Amos engaged with it for a variety of reasons. Again, personal, looking at her own you know mixed background. You know, having ancestors that were a part of, if you will that planter class that uh, Jefferson belonged to and how they had the ability to take liberties with African, you know, or African descended women and produce children that looked like someone like Amos herself. And at that point she had, I mean, had through, for a lifetime had been querying, you know, her own past and to have a publication and this kind of extended research on a founding father that reflected, you know, probably some of her own feelings about race intermixture, the formation of this country, and even the silencing of a figure like a Sally Hemings historically prior to that point. You know, she wanted to feminize, if you will, this this work by, you know, making it into a dress, you know, automatically feminizes it. And in some respects, it's like an apron, you know, the, you know, so that it also suggests this kind of domesticity, but also that servility toward Jefferson. So it's both punning on the fact that, yeah, he's family, but at the same time, I'm a servant. But at the same time, it's both quirky and kind of oddly placed, but it still happened. <laughs> you know, so if you think about having his image in the middle, like, that seems kind of quirky, but it still happened. <laughs> it still exists, this, this, this work. And so I think that she was finding different ways to kind of experiment with her own work in a way that reflected that slight discomfort in dealing with these harder topics, but also making them accessible. So, you know, making a dress, that's accessible for people to understand. So I think that when that those revelations came out and actually in successive moments, you know, talking about founding fathers and, you know, these kind of historical 
suggestions of miscegenation. I think that it gave her an opportunity to kind of transform her own work in, in, in creative ways, too. One of the things I hadn't realized or known and certainly not thought about before reading your catalog was how much and the ways in which Amos uses water and pools in her work. Why? Why was she so interested in water and and swimmers? And then maybe how, how, how do other artists jump off from her interest? In many of the interviews that Amos completed over the years, there was kind of a twofold thing. And the first part of that is during the Olympic, you know, a lot of a lot of Americans became more attuned to the presence of, for example, African-Americans appearing in the Olympic Games in a larger numbers, if you will, in the 1980s and probably early 1990s. And so the presence of kind of a more diverse athletic or picture of athletics inspired some of that. Although Amos was also being imaginative in other instances where she didn't see enough in her estimation of brown bodies that were appearing. And so there was this kind of you know push and pull of seeing maybe the presence of a few, which was exciting, but then not the presence of yet not enough and, you know, kind of allowing her imagination to run wild. Like she has a, a one painting of a diver that the, you know, the diver is a, you know, looks to be a black male figure, but she said it actually was based on, was it Greg Luganis's body? So she said she wanted to imagine what would happen if she made him black. She had several diver paintings. And so she would use different athletes to kind of inspire her for some of those paintings. And so that was an example of, you know, how she kind of transposed a black figure onto what was actually a a person that, you know, non-African American. But the other part of it was personal, that Amos, and, and, and maybe some of these images of divers kind of conjured up a fear that she had of swimming, that she never really knew how to swim. I mean, she loved going to the beach. You know, some of her early paintings, you know, depict her in a bathing suit, or she's talked about how a lot of African-American women in particular, that there was the other part of uh, swimming, not just her own fear of swimming, but also, you know, the hair issue. Like she didn't swim a lot necessarily or submerge herself in water because that would mess up your hair. And she had those memories of, you know, how hard it was for black women to to really let go and and submerge themselves in water because they had to worry about their hair afterwards. And so a lot of different sentiments kind of get buried into what, what you're referring to as the water series and then another series called the aquarium series that we have two impressions of where she's letting go finally, or she's showing this, these images of people's brown bodies that are letting go of those fears, whether it be, you know, unfounded personal fears or this fear of drowning or just a fear of maybe not excelling in the athletic arena or not appearing. I was, I was talking to somebody recently about, African-Americans, you know, in swimming, and they talked a lot about how public pools not being accessible or or in other cases being kind of taken away, even when they were accessible, for example, in public housing that may once African-Americans moved into certain major cities that 
those public pools were left in disrepair. And so a lot of folks weren't able to learn how to swim because they didn't have a lifeguard or they didn't have those those amenities. You know, there's a lot of social implications when it comes to water and swimming that have racial overtones to them, whether it be segregation of pools that may be limited people of color from wanting to learn how to swim or be a part of that kind of athletic pursuit to just her own personal fears. So I think that, you know, Amos does a great job of kind of conjuring a lot of, you know, both personal and historical um, sentiments around a lot of these themes of, of swimming and water. I mentioned a little bit earlier that Amos addresses Picasso and Matisse in ways that recall Diebenkorn and de Kooning for me. I mean, she addresses them so smartly, so cleverly, adds so much to their work by her address of them. She treats them as two different artists. Picasso's address of Africa, African art, and Africans was different than Matisse's, and Amos recognized that, and that lives in her work. So there's a work of Amos's such as Muse Picasso from 1997, which takes a hard sideways glance at Picasso, for example, whereas Amos doesn't, you know, is a little gentler and a little more open to addressing Matisse. What difference in their work do you think she identified, or what difference in their address of Africa, African art, and African people do you think she identified? I'm 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 looking at a um, while you're talking I'm looking at another work that uh, is in the exhibition that does kind of distinctly reference Matisse. It's called Malcolm X, Morley, Matisse, and Me, and it's kind of like a play on you know Malcolm Morley, but then she also had a a fascination with Malcolm X and Matisse, and then of course her own you know subjectivity, and it's like this kind of mismatch of different references that includes kind of a silhouetted body that's kind of akin to one of the bodies that might have been in something like the red line drawing that you referenced earlier. Matisse's large reclining nude, yeah. Right, the, the blue nude. And then also palm trees in the lower left kind of referencing Matisse and Tahiti. And then um, in the background, there's a very Colescottian passage that also could reference the tropics. And then also, you know, this this kind of photographic image that is a part of a body of work that she utilized, you know, photo transfers from her godfather. I think that one of the things that she liked about Matisse beyond just the, the colors and the scenery and, you know, that kind of kind of almost utopian <laughs> type image he was trying to produce um, in some in some works is this whole idea of you know, the ability to kind of fracture and, you know, kind of reshape and, you know, contort that, you know, whether she's contorting her narrative, you know, she's utilizing that kind of visual contortion, you know, in works like these, like she's able to kind of twist and turn different formal um, aspects in order to kind of suit her purposes. And I think that that's something that she appreciated more with the Matisse when it comes to uh, Picasso and even, you know, another artist that she liked to reference at what as well was Gauguin, she really became, you know, embroiled with their stories or their personal histories, particularly with their relationships with women and <laughs> or, you know, and the, you know, the kind of scandalous aspects that accompanied that, you know, so 
I do see like a difference in emphasis, you know, when it comes to certain artists. Like P- Picasso always seems to be a little bit more explicit, you know, like she'll actually show his face. You know, Gauguin, she doesn't show his face, but he, she will show the, the, the face of his mistress, Teamana. I mean... In Muse Picasso, she shows his face just as she shows Jefferson's face in the belly of an apron, whereas surrounded by African figures and references from which Picasso uh, borrowed. And and as you noted before, the work addressing Jefferson and Hemings also includes Jefferson on in the belly of the dress. Right. And I think that the, the fact that, you know, there's this fracturing that she likes to do, like even with her work, work suit, where she's utilizing the kind of self-portrait of a a Lucian Freud, but she doesn't use his head, of course. She uses her own head, but she utilizes his a transfer or fragment of, you know, kind of a collage of his body, but she kind of takes over. So she becomes the mind of that body, you know, and she kind of controls the output of that body by placing her head on top of it. So there's this way in which Amos picks and chooses the I would say different aspects of emphasis from various artists, whether it be their head or their body or their handiwork, if you if you will, in the terms of their actual creation. You know, she uses it almost as a, like, if you will, her, her it's a part of her collage aesthetic where I can use this part of you. I can use that part of you. I can use a piece of myself and I can create something completely different or upend all of the things that you were about, <laughs> you know, I mean, and that was the uh, the other part of it was, you know, in the 90s that she really kind of struck out toward really taking, a, 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 a as you said, a sideline glance at figures in Western art and, you know, and critiquing them a little bit more directly. And the, her collage aesthetic really made it possible for her to both respect what they were able to offer her as an artist in terms of history and her being a part of that genealogy, but also upending it and questioning it, critiquing it, sometimes actually disregarding it in other cases. Finally, and this is a teeny bit of inside baseball, it's pretty rare in the institutional art world for an institution and a curator to take on the retrospective of an artist at the very end of an artist's life and during that troubling, difficult period when an artist has passed and the artist's estate is kind of organizing itself, both legally and otherwise. Yet you and the museum were willing to do that and did it and pulled it off magnificently. You know, this, this, your, your catalog is going to be hard for any 2021 show to top, I think. Um, I haven't seen the show yet, but I'm pretty confident it's going to be pretty great. What was it like for you to to work in that kind of you know in, in in an extended interstitial period and to put together an oeuvre and the scholarship related to it well one of the benefits that i had and have and i i kind of look at it as almost a you know <laughs> still going on <laughs> rather than past tense i got to know amos and members of her former studio and later her um, her gallerist, Ryan Lee Gallery, at kind of a pivotal point where before she got really, you know, ill with, you know, devastating disease of Alzheimer's. And so I was kind of in the pipeline, so to speak, as a 
a person that was interested as a curator and scholar in, in Amos's work. So that helped a lot. So people knew that Shania Harris was interested in Amos's work and that might, you know, she might eventually do an exhibition if it'll ever get off the ground. <laughs> because I remember I was looking back through some of my emails when I first started working in Georgia. I said, you know, you know how you kind of reorder your emails and you see, well, who was I talking to back in those early days? You know, you're kind of deleting emails. And literally one of my first emails that I wrote was to Emma Studio. And I said, hi, Emma, I'm I'm working at the Georgia Museum of Art now. I hope you're doing OK. I still want to do <laughs> an exhibition with you at some point. And then it kind of then, you know, conversations you know, intermittently happened. And then I discovered, of course, that, you know, she, you know, she had declined considerably since the, you know, last time I had spoken with her and her studio assistant at the time, you know, said that they were, you know, kind of intervening more, but that she had a new gallerist that she was working with. And that's how I made the connection with Ryan Lee Gallery. And, you know, as always, my annual trip for probably about five years prior to that and, you know, well into planning of the exhibition, I would always make sure that whenever I went to New York, I was going to stop in and see Emma. And so, you know, I became kind of an old standby. You know, I wasn't really sure how the exhibition was going to develop. I didn't know if, where the funding was going to come from, but I just kind of kept the relationship with her gallery, you know, with her studio, peripherally with her children. I, I never got a chance to get to know them personally as directly, except for some brief moments where I might have interacted, you know, over email or I, I met her son, you know, in person once while she was, you know, still living at her, you know, and working at her Bond Street studio. But, you know, everyone kind of knew of my, <laughs> the girl, well, they used to call me the girl from North Carolina because I lived in North Carolina for several years, but then I became the girl from Georgia. And so... <laughs> You know, so I think that it really helped that I had started on the project, you know, even if it wasn't concrete yet earlier, you know, into conceptually. And then, you know, as things got a little bit more difficult, we just kept in communication, you know, with the people that had a really supportive. I mean, Ryan Lee has been a really supportive gallery for and um, really helped has helped her, her career to like really take off and move her work into different collections. And then. Her studio assistant, Natalia De Campos, she was always very, um, very helpful to me and, you know, became, you know, a person that I could rely on to kind of keep an update in general on the artist's well-being and so forth until kind of late in the game. So, Shania Harris, thank you. Thank you so much. I was happy to talk to you today. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston has just opened the new Nancy and Rich Kinder Building for Modern and Contemporary Art, capping the completion of a decade-long project to complete the Susan and Fayez as Seraphim campus. Visit mfah.org slash getmodern. Compare and contrast. This foundational method of analysis, first championed in the late 19th century by Swiss art historian Heinrich Wolflin, is at the heart of an exhibition of well-known and beloved works at Sheldon Museum of Art. Through July 3, 2021, the exhibition Sheldon Treasures presents works in pairs, inviting fresh and unexpected conversations between the works and among viewers. Richard Diebenkorn, Edward Hopper, Helen Lundberg, Ed Ruscha, Kay Sage, and Wayne Tebow 
are among the artists included. For virtual galleries, learning guides, and information about online events, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, a version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. The fifth edition of the Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. Welcome back. Next up, Marie Watt. She joins me to discuss her work on the occasion of companion species at the Crystal Bridges Museum of Art and the Museum of Native American History, both in Bentonville, Arkansas. As of this taping, Crystal Bridges is open, and companion species will be on view there through May 24th. The Museum of Native American History has yet to announce its post-COVID reopening plans. The exhibition spotlights and builds upon Watt's companion species speech bubble, which Crystal Bridges recently acquired. Watt is a citizen of the Seneca Nation, whose work often explores ideas related to community, history, and storytelling. She often works in textile, including in works that are partially sewed by community sewing circles. She's had solo exhibitions at the National Museum of the American Indian, the Boise Art Museum, the Seattle Art Museum, the Missoula Art Museum, and the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art at Washington State University. This summer, she'll be featured in a two-person show at the Denver Art Museum. Watt is also a museum board member at the Portland Art Museum in Oregon. Marie Watt, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's nice to be here. Let's talk about the work that Crystal Bridges has acquired and that's up in companion species there. It makes use of a, to use a phrase I've never used before, speech bubble-like form (laughs) that has been in your work for the last two or three years. I think maybe first in a work called Companion Species Calling Companion Species that's now in the collection of the Schnitzer Museum at Washington State. What about that shape or that form or whatever word is appropriate attracts you to it? For me, that form is like a megaphone. It is speech bubble-like, as you mentioned. It also sometimes can start 
to resemble a tongue. I think the thing about the shape is that it has this sense of communicating something that is in motion or that's in progress or that is getting louder. And that is important to me about that. So another thing about this megaphone-like form you're using is that you've also been using words on that form, often lots of words. And words have been a key component of your work for a while now, often in ways that play with shape and, and simple graphic forms and colors. Who or what brought text words into the work? In this current body of work, I've been really asking the question, what would the world look like if we thought of ourselves as companion species? And in asking that question, I started listening to the song What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. And in some ways, that song and the lyrics really started to resonate with me and the sense that Marvin Gaye in that song is asking or calling people, family members, mother, mother, brother, brother, sister, sister, father, father. He's making this call. But I realize this call is not just to family members. It's actually a call to community. It's a call to me and it's a call to other people. And it's a call that is that really recognizes our relatedness. And in that call, what I realized is that it's also the way as a Seneca indigenous person, it's the way I understand my relationship to community as well. And so I saw this intersection between what I like to refer to as Marvin Gaye knowledge intersecting with indigenous knowledge about our relatedness. You mentioned that this recent body of work is called companion species. So it's companion species something, for example. What about the idea or the concept of companion species interested you? So my interest in the word companion species comes from the Seneca and Iroquois teaching that animals are our first teachers. And this really relates to the Iroquois uh, origin story about Sky Woman who falls or perhaps is pushed from a hole in the sky world. And as she falls, she is helped first by birds and then this motley crew of animals who help her settle in what we now refer to as Turtle Island. And so in my tribe, we acknowledge this historic relationship with animals by naming our clans after animals. I come from a matrilineal community and I am from the turtle clan, but my enrollment rights and voting rights and land ownership rights and I think I've listed them all. These rights are passed on through our mothers. But I think really the thing that was really important to me in thinking about companion species was it was an opportunity to think about not just how we're related to animals, but I think it opens up an important and necessary conversation about how we're also connected intimately to the environment. So a couple times you've mentioned community and the importance of, of community as informing your work. And of course, community foregrounds itself in the making of your work. What about having large groups of people coming together at museums or universities or wherever? What about that as a process is important to you? You know, I think early on, I participated with community thinking 
that it was similar to a barn raising. And so it would be this opportunity to get together and kind of many hands make light work and I'll feed you. And then I will roll up my sleeves and, and help you as well. And I think what I quickly realized is that one of the things I so enjoy about collaborating with community and hosting open to the community sewing circles, for example, is that something is made when I set the table. And what is made is created by everybody in the space at that time. And so when I look at a piece that might be finished, if, if work is ever finished, but when I, when I look at a piece that might be finished, I can't just see that object on a wall. I am reminded of all of the sensory experiences and conversations that are connected to that artwork. And so I think what I enjoy most about the community engagement is getting together with people who are um, from different generations. And I enjoy people who come together from different disciplines. And I also really value this kind of cross-cultural exchange that happens. And it's always my hope that when people leave, maybe they've perhaps met somebody and walk away with a, a, new, a new friend or that they feel more connected in the world for having participated in that moment because they helped build something which is really hard to define. But I think those who were there carry that, that with them. They continue to carry that with them. And I, and I guess I can say, I know I, I do. I, I feel like in that, that space, I am always a, maybe a teacher and a learner. And I, and I think teacher almost sounds too, too formal, but I feel like it's a privilege to be in conversation with people in that space. And and truthfully, when people's eyes are down and they're working with something as familiar with as with cloth, stories just tend to flow. The way it usually works when you bring dozens or scores of people together at sewing circles is the thing or things they make at those sewing circles are then taken by you back to your studio where they are made into larger works made up of these objects that other people have contributed to. You have talked before about how you can see, and indeed any viewer looking at one of your works on the wall in front of that person, can see the markers of different hands acting on different pieces of textile that people who sew sew differently. And so they're leaving behind not quite a signature, but there are markers of difference between what different people have made. Why do you like that? What about what about that works for you? I think that the work becomes bigger than the sum of a part. And I, I think that there's this expanded vocabulary that happens that just couldn't happen alone. There's so many different things. I've, I've been working with particularly maybe since 2007 or 2010. Embroidery has become more predominant in the open to the community sewing circle work. And I think you really get a sense of people's hand and stitches. And then when text became part of the content of what was being stitched, all of a sudden I see those stitches almost being more of an extension of a, a participant's 
body and and it's as if like like words you can see the cadence of their voice in a stitch it's such a particular mark and expression and in a way like it's imprinting not just that mark but it also kind of bears the conversation and everything else that was taking place in that moment is suddenly like loaded into that stitch as well stitches I feel oddly qualified to interview you because I'm a human being and your most famous interview was not conducted with with a human being. (laughs) So three and a half years ago, you conducted a conversation for the College Art Association's art journal with a coyote and not just any coyote, a, a specific coyote. So whose who's coyote was that, so to speak? And why did you choose to have that conversation in, in our journal that way? I know I need to think about this. It was a very, very important meeting because I had learned from my ancestors and art historians about this coyote. And they shapeshifted to meet me and to share in a conversation about my work, but also about the artist Joseph Boyce. And I think that that interview was so important because when I first learned about Joseph Boyce, I thought that maybe he was taking the shamanistic practices, this this performance aspect and ritual aspect of his work, the way he was connecting it to this relative of mine, it begged further conversation. Well, we'll have a link to the conversation from manpodcast.com. So let me kind of follow up with a blunter question, which is why did you want to talk to a coyote in print? I think I wanted to talk to a coyote in print because I do think of animals as our first teachers. And I realized how this animal was central to Joseph Boyce's practice. And as a person who works with blankets and who has actually some similar interests in how actions might bring community together. I mean, I kind of, you know, it's funny. I feel like I have this very complex relationship with Joseph Boyce because on one hand, he's probably the figure that sort of opened up Western art to me in this, this kind of interesting way when I was studying abroad. And on the other hand, I think one of the reasons I connected with that work was because I understood it from this indigenous perspective. And so, but then it, it also made me question his authority to be doing the work. And I thought it was important that if he was going to use a coyote for his, or well, I guess it is use, if he was going to have this interview or this meeting with the coyote as for his first visit to the United States and he was not going to see anything, do anything else, see anything else, but have this private 
meeting with a coyote, then it seemed to me that it needed the coyote needed to have like the in, the actual indigenous connection that Boyce was referencing needed to be further amplified and examined by an indigenous artist, me. So I think that that was part of it. And, and I will say, like, I, there's certain things I really like about Joseph Boyce. And one of my favorite things is this, this notion that people who want to learn should be able to come together with people who want to teach. He believed in this like kind of notion of the free university and he was actually sacked and like sacked from his position in Dusseldorf because I believe he let people people in without paying tuition. And I suspect that part of my interest and in teaching at a community college for a decade was really linked to that, and also having a mentor who was a community college instructor as examples of where education could be accessible to more people. You know, there's that, there's that aspect too. He's a complex, he's a complex figure in, in my personal, my personal narrative, but one that I'm grateful for too. About the time you had that conversation, he says, extending the conceit, (laughs) you were making a lot of artworks that featured dogs or, and or coyotes. And I think what strikes me about those works is you're not using a dog or coyote as a stand-in for a single idea, not as not allegory, not not as a single allegory, not as a single metaphor, but 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 in lots of ways, and indeed referencing lots of different cultural traditions, from Roman mythology to to things closer to home, if you will. Was part of your interest in dogs and coyotes that they were this particularly both malleable and universal and thus to an artist useful thing? I like when I started to ask this question, what would the world be like if we considered ourselves companion species? I wondered what would be the appropriate animal to be in this conversation with. And I arrived at dogs, partly dogs, canines, wolves, coyotes, the she-wolf. It seemed like the correct entry point because of this rich history of how canines are, you know, prominent in, in myths and coyote stories. And in our tribe, we have the wolf as a, as a clan. And I was interested in how dogs are portrayed in the history of, of art. I actually, like one of the images that is really important to me is this image of the she-wolf with Remus and Romulus because it really created this opening after looking at it for so long, thinking about this word mother. Like, what what is a mother? I want to close by asking by, about the works you've made over the last decade or so that reference Brancusi's endless column form, such as Skywalker, Skyscraper, Babel, from 2012, which is a work that is in the forthcoming Denver Art Museum show, I think. What about Brancusi's Endless Column interested you as something to to build upon and depart from, both at the same time, of course? 
I have always been drawn to the way Brancusi has brought together different materials, like hard and soft. And I would say soft, meaning maybe wood, or maybe I should say like cold and warm, hard and soft, shiny and matte, like different textures coming together. And in a way, like I think that the materials that he introduces in his work radically change the foundation of where sculpture goes from that moment, at least within that particular canon. And so those are, those are some of the, the things that draw me to that, that particular, to that connection, I would say, but then there's also these other references. So the reference wasn't just Brancusi. The reference was growing up in the Pacific Northwest and being indigenous person in this urban environment and being surrounded by Coast Salish totem poles and also being in the Pacific Northwest. Also, the, there's the conifers. There's my closet, my linen closet that's sort of like always stuffed to the gills until it's sort of straightened and then it gets stuffed to the gills again. So there's all these different references with, with those, those columns or those columnar forms. And then really early on, I, I realized that these blankets weren't just like these modular, it's not just a modular material for me. It's a material that's coded. It's a material that means specific things to me as an indigenous person and to other indigenous people in their respective communities. It is an object that might be a marker for memory and story for you. And I think that that's where working with blankets sort of, I'm going to re-say this, but when I started using blankets, I think that the more I listened to that material than the work began to evolve and and ask new questions and and it and in a way like I don't think I really anticipated being a person who would be working with blankets for almost two decades well speaking of the the open-endedness of the reference to Brancusi's endless column because it's more of a because I think what you're doing is more nodding toward it than descending from it one of the f- forms I see in those works as the form of an obelisk. Obelisks in the European tradition are kind of simultaneously celebrating conquest and are memorial and have within them some colonial, what we would now call colonial references. They operate, I think, or have operated a little differently in the American tradition. Are you interested in or there being a relationship between work such as Skywalker Skyscraper and the obelisk form? I definitely am aware of how the forms are similar, but I think the actual intent is quite opposite. Yeah, it's kind of it's a queering of the form. I wanna I wanna make let me let me make let me make clear that I'm I'm pointing to the queering of the form, not to the supporting of its origins. Right, right. No, and I think one of the things that that is really important to me about using blankets in these forms is that in a way they they are these domestic objects 
that are storied objects in our lives. And, and hopefully when you see a blanket that looks familiar, your story is what becomes part of that monument. And so it radically kind of subverts this idea of celebrating conquest in part because it can be anybody's story that's in that monument. And it can be a person, it's a personal story. And I think that like one of the things that I like about working with bronze in particular and the casting process of one of the things that I've done in my practice is I've uh, worked with Walla Walla Foundry on casting blankets in a way that the blanket gets incinerated in the casting process, but what is left is this impression of the original object, this almost exact impression of the original object. And then I'm interested in how blankets as a monument change the story of the history used to recognize military leaders and equestrian statues and and other, you know, figures from from history. For me, it's a, I think the history of these ordinary objects that we imprint upon, that receive us into the world, that accompany our departures, I think those stories are really important. And I think sometimes our focus is taken away or not, our focus is directed to I guess I'm just I'm just interested in directing our attention to those stories. I get I I want to think of them as not being in competition with other headline grabbing stories because I actually think that these these stories are what make us human and they're the stories that connect us to one another and they're yeah, they're the stories that matter. There's this elder who recently passed away. His name is Gordon Battles, and he was from the Klamath tribe. And he likes to say, my story changes when I know your story. And that is, I think, one of the reasons why community matters to me. It's one of the reasons why I appreciate conversations like this. It's one of the reasons why I want us, that is humans, to recognize our relationship with animals and the environment because we live in a fragile ecosystem and it's going to take us working together to create a future for the next generation. Marie Watt, thank you. Thanks, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.